You're listening to Outside the Chamber, and I'm your host, Eleanor Sturko, the member of BC's Legislative Assembly for Surrey South, here in beautiful Surrey, British Columbia. There are a ton of challenges we're facing in BC today, from the unbelievably high cost of living to the current healthcare crisis and beyond. British Columbians have a lot to talk about. That's why my team and I have decided to create a podcast that goes beyond the legislative chamber and has real discussions about the issues facing our province. Thank you for joining us today. We have a very special guest today who is a fellow mother and advocate from south of the Fraser River. It's Shirley Wilson. Shirley is a six-term school trustee for Abbotsford with a long record of service to her community. She was also elected as one of seven trustees to the BC Public School Employers Association where she serves as vice chair. Shirley has used her skills to provide event and partnership special services to the nonprofit sector in the Fraser Valley, but it's actually because of a very personal tragedy that she's joining me today. On November 11th, 2021, her 24-year-old son, Jacob, died of a fentanyl overdose. He had suffered after a lengthy battle with brain injury and psychosis. So Shirley, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Eleanor. So I just you know, wanted to start off mostly with an opportunity. I wanna learn a little bit more about Jacob. Can you tell me um, a little bit about his story and who he was as a person? Jacob was a, an individual that I couldn't say enough good things about. He is not the person that you would think of who would die of a fentanyl overdose. He was a happy child. He was an early reader in in kindergarten. He earned a, a big fancy donut at the front of the class for reading 100 books. And that was like January of his kindergarten year. He was very smart. He was very bright. He was affectionate. He had this wonderful sense of humor, a bit macabre, but that runs in the family. <laughs> but he was, um, he loved his family. Uh, if there was going to be a family gathering, I'm the youngest of 10. He had multiple cousins and aunts and uncles. He was in to say dinner. He was there in a shot. And he was loved and he was loving and he never missed a moment to provide that affectionate, I love you, mom. That's, never missed it. That's uh, beautiful. Um, but something did happen. He, he acquired a brain injury. Yes. And so what happened? On August 31st, 2018, which happens to be also International Overdose Awareness Day, my son was run over, Jacob was run over by a pickup truck an accident. He was lying in the middle of a road. We're not sure to this day how he ended up there, but he was run over in the middle of the night and uh, the the police, the Abbotsford Police Department came knocking on my door. It took a while for them to reach me to tell me that my son had died. He was being held on life support and that I needed to go sign the documents because he was an organ donor. It was It was displayed on his driver's license. So as I was preparing to go do that duty that no mother wants to do, it changed in a heartbeat. There was a moment where they went from, you're on your way to Abbotsford Regional and, oh, wait, we're going to Royal Columbian. And hope sparked. Yeah. And it was a beautiful, beautiful moment in something that was so devastating. I can't, I can't imagine, you know, even as a police officer, and, I, and I've had to deliver next of kin notifications and be with families in tragedy, but 
still putting yourself on the other side, being that parent and receiving that information. I can't imagine what a nightmare that must have been at the time. It was fundamentally awful. Horrid is a word that comes to mind. Devastating. Um, I was in a room at Royal Columbian, a family room, which was ironically not actually available. We were in a patient space, so they cleared it out. And there were about 14 of us, like I said, large family. They were flanking me for support. Sorry, I get emotional about no, this. Uh, you know what? Not sorry. I would have been yeah. surprised to not see emotion. I mean, you're a mother that's been through so much. And, you know, I'm so pleased that you're here and and that you're sharing your emotion with us because I think that Jacob's story is an important one and your experience is an important one that can help a lot of parents out there right now. And, and for people who may not understand the challenges that we're facing in our mental health uh, system, particularly surrounding brain injury and mm-hmm. also uh, with addiction. Mm-hmm. So what, you know, so Jacob did uh, eventually get better you know he still had an acquired brain injury but so what happened he he eventually was released from the hospital what happened in his life after that so many things happened um jake was in the hospital about three months he was transferred around he ended up from icu hau over to what is known as the gunshots um and trauma ward at royal columbian and then transferred out to abbotsford and then over to Mission for palliative care. He did have a significant brain injury. He suffered a fractured skull, multiple facial injuries. So he was a little bit special in that he had all of these facial injuries, was going to require all these surgeries, and he had, um, he had multiple fractures in other parts of his body, which meant that for eight weeks, he couldn't weight bear at all. And when he was released, because He had um, cocaine, methamphetamines, he had um, cannabis, he had alcohol in his system. At the time of the accident, they released him into the care of a recovery house. And he was in and out of recovery houses for the rest of his time with us, which was just over three years. And so he um, was using substances before the, the accident. He was, but I wouldn't say that he was a user. I would say that he experimented and he found it fascinating because as I mentioned, he was a very smart, bright young man and he thought he could beat any system. And, and, and I do want to clarify, nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to become an addict today. That's no. not on anybody's radar. Uh, so he believed that if he tried and he dabbled that it, it wouldn't be a big deal. It would be, okay, been there, done that, I'll move on. And I think, you know, in terms of, um, you know, people, uh, young people particularly, or like novel drug users, um, sometimes young people do feel that way, you know, that, that experimenting or even recreationally using, that, that it might not have a, a bad impact, you know, because they're just trying. <laughs> um, but we do see sometimes uh, that that can lead to a pathway of addiction. So what happened after um, when Jacob was re- he was released then to um, to a halfway house, I guess, or a recovery center. So what was the journey like after that? Did you notice a lot of changes after the head injury? Yes, Jacob was a, a little bit more, I'm going to say aggressive, but that was the psychosis from the brain injury. That was the reality of what we were going to face. We were told that within two years of the brain injury, we were going to see psychosis. 
and within two years it was full-on psychosis and at times it was very frightening for us and definitely for him. It wasn't a place that he wanted to be to live in fear. He didn't want to live in anguish and while some folks have asked me like did he take the drugs because he was in so much pain? I say he was in mental anguish and that is a pain that none of us can understand. It's not like a broken bone. He was he knew he would never be able to work again. He had been a heavy equipment operator. He wasn't going to do that again. So he was trying to manage his life just to get by. And the way to do that and to get through all the medical appointments, all the extensive surgeries following that was to escape with that mental anguish. And if it had not been for the accident, that would not have occurred without the brain injury and without the accident. So were there a lot of services available to you then um, and to him in terms of dealing with the brain injury or did you find that there was a gap in dealing with brain injury? There are multiple, multiple gaps in our system. There is no one pathway that any person can take to get the assistance that they need. And this is one of the reasons that I have decided that I am going to speak up about this. Speak up, speak out. And I'm also hoping that other parents and families that, or, or maybe siblings that have gone through this, that they give their voice to this as well. Because the, the medical system pushed him into the addictions recovery versus having the mental health supports that were actually required for him to move forward with his life. We tried. They're like, you can take him home, he'll be fine. We're not equipped. Yeah. Families are just simply not the experts and not equipped. Well, and when I hear you, I guess, talking about his mental anguish, dealing with the psychosis, the fear that he felt, that's not something necessarily that uh, an addictions program would be equipped to deal with because those are things that changed for him fundamentally as a result of an actual physical change to his brain because his brain was injured. And, you know, um, actually I'm following very closely some very kind of similar circumstances happening all across the province with, because we are seeing an increase in acquired brain injury. So I guess, you know, what, what are some of the things that you would have liked to see and what you as a parent who has been through, I mean, and you've been through a lot, Hmm, I have. You have. And that's why, I, you know, we met before yes. on a Zoom. This isn't my first time speaking with you. And in fact, um, you had reached out to me, I think, on social media. I did. And then I watched Jacob's story, which um, is you have spoken publicly and put a very awesome video, which anyone out there who hasn't seen it should definitely go um, on YouTube and, and look at Jacob's story. And you'll be able to hear from his mom and um it's an important story. So I think the reason I wanted to have you on is because, you know, even for me as the critic for mental health and addictions, one of the most effective and powerful things that I can do in advocating for change is understanding what needs to change. Absolutely. And, and I only know that when I talk with people who have walked this journey. So what would you say would be some of the fundamental things that we could do to shift circumstances? So if there is another person out there who is living Jacob's experience, that we make sure that they are more successful. I'm gonna give you an example of one of the hospitalizations with Jacob where they, um, at, at one point they called him a frequent flyer, which is an unfortunate term. 
uh, it seems that the medical system has now hived off mental health and addiction, set it aside as, as, as a different priority, that it's not related to health in some way, not that holistic approach. And that's unfortunate because, you know, we're wanting to go towards a system where we're recognizing that addiction and mental health is health. Um, and, you it know, is. the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions doesn't actually, um, it's more of a policy hub than um, something that is um, handing out treatment or anything like that. So that, that responsibility still stays with healthcare. Um, yeah, so that, that's unfortunate if that's how patients and people in BC feel is that it is being hived off. So, so there are multiple, many, many um, very um, thoughtful organizations out there, well positioned to provide assistance, but they're not mandated to do so. They are structured in such a way that they receive the funding, but they, there are no standards of practice. So the example that I use quite frequently is where my son was hospitalized for 49 days. They kept him on purpose in the psych ward so that at the end of that time, he would be released to wrap around care. That was, that was how long he had to stay in the hospital to get that particular type of care. But on the day that he was to be released into that program, they denied him because he had an acquired brain injury. And that for us... Which is something they would have known from the start. Should have, and, and they certainly did. Everybody knew. But to have a program that provides wrap around care and then to dismiss people because they have, they have concurrent brain disorders, that's really unreasonable to me. They kept him there for that specific purpose. And just think, 49 days in the life of someone in mental anguish in a hospital, seeing that hope out the door and it gets dismissed because the, the wraparound services that we should have at the front end just don't exist. All those organizations that should be on the same pathway for the same purpose have said, no, I've got a niche and I'm gonna do this, and I'm not gonna do that, but we'll work with this one. And they say, well, yeah, we're not gonna work with you because we've got our own niche. And, and it proceeds like that. And it's really unfortunate that we have the government processes intertwined with these um, non-profits, associations, charities, who are trying to do the good work. I do not want to dismiss their work, but I do wanna highlight that if a parent goes to one, or a family member, or a close friend, someone you call family, then it's not possible for you to get all the services right. that you need. And I, I want to add one more thing to this, Eleanor, is that at first I thought Jacob was an extremely unique case. Now I know he isn't. I have spoken to so many parents who've lost their child in a similar way because A, the services weren't available, but there was a car accident or some kind of physical impairment that occurred that caused perhaps the, the concurrent disorders that now all of a sudden they're out there swimming and they, they, they can't find the shore. It's impossible. Well, and it's like, you know, we have instead of a, and this might be a silly analogy, but you know, you think about it, a bucket that would catch problems, you know, and, and issues and something to collect, a central place where we're collecting um, services so that people could receive everything they need, but instead it's like a colander and people fall through and the problems, you know, it's, it's not, you can, there is no one-stop shop where you can go in this province 
with concurrent um, disorders. And, and the bottom line is I have yet to meet someone that had a single problem yeah. when it comes to these type of challenges. We have people that have um, started using um, drugs who have then acquired a brain injury because of that drug use, or they already had um, a mental health issue, or they also suffer from mental health but also may have a learning disability, and, and they have complex issues together. So we need to try and embrace this idea that you're talking about, which is more of um, wraparound services that have many different forms of treatment and support within one location instead of leaving people floundering trying to piece together a, a program for their loved one mm-hmm. who's trying to seek care. As a school trustee for the past 18 years, I'm coming up on that 18th anniversary, I, I've seen ebbs and flows in services being provided provincially and locally and regionally. So when I think about that, in the um, what I know about students and the issues that arise, these are complex students. There, as you know, it's not one singular issue. All of a sudden, it's this learning disability is piling on this social isolation, and then other things start to build from that as well. Like that's just another example. Yeah, that's it exactly, though, and that's why complex services. Are needed to meet complex challenges instead of like for example when when Jacob was released and had an acquired brain injury just treatment alone wasn't going to be able to address the issues that he had and it wasn't he, provided and it wasn't provided and so um, you know we have um, about 10 minutes left and so I want to make sure we get to you know a little bit deeper into Jacob's story and so his drug use then continued, yes. and, and obviously, too, he wasn't going to recover from um, his brain injury and no. wasn't receiving the support that he needed. So tell me then a little bit more about Jacob's story. We know that he um, then eventually succumbed to a drug overdose. Yes. That is horrible, and I'm so sorry. And that was during COVID as well, yes. which yes. was very isolating for a lot of people. So do you think that COVID played a role too, like in terms of the isolation? I think COVID played a role, and I know that there was a reported increase in the deaths due to drug toxicity. I don't believe that COVID was the cause. I do believe that when someone is already in that situation, they already have social isolation. In the reports, we know that that individuals who pass from the the drug toxicity crisis that's happening in our province are dying undercover. The word used has been shelter, but shelter indicates somehow that they're protected. But shelter is not the word for this. And they're alone. That's just simply it. They're alone in a room, alone in a basement, alone in in a house or in a car out and somewhere because they don't want people to see what they're going through. And I think we need to pay attention to that and not blame COVID. This is not going to change. We are not on the precipice of change in any way, shape or form. There is no tipping point in front of us. We have to make it happen. It's not there. Yeah. No, and I think you're right. It's just, and, and I guess you made the point too that you know, people who are in the situation, whether it's addictions, uh, mental health issues, or, you know, acquired brain injury, they have already um, a great deal of isolation just by virtue of the illnesses and the challenges that they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is a solution then to help break that isolation? 
like what would be something that we could do, what type of program or what type of like systemic change could we make that would help break that isolation down? Uh, right off the bat, change the name of Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions. Okay. Because that has um, uh, implications that somehow if you have a mental health issue, i.e. you're depressed, then you must be an addict. And those, they're paired together in the same ministry policy area. Change it. Change the mandate. Look at the mandate letter. Change that. Because that letter of direction to the minister, whoever the minister is, whoever's in, in power as a party, needs to shift that from just housing, which it is right now, to frontline services, to make sure that the families that are in the in the forest but they can't see the, the forest for the trees, mm -hmm. they need to know at any level, wherever they look, they need to be able to go to wherever they ask for a service, whether it's their family doctor, the you know the World Wide Web of Google, or whatever search engine, they need to know that the school, the police, everything, the hospital, the hospital for Pete's sake, should be the first ones to say, this is how we can help. This is, we've got services that are, are at no cost to you to assist you through this. Because that's the other reality, is people can't afford this. Absolutely. No, Not they can't care. afford it. No. No, they can't. So Better as Possible is our... Um, from my the opposition parties, um, that's our platform for mental health and addiction, and, and our intention should we form the next government is to make um, treatment and recovery and other services free for all British Columbians because we know particularly during a time like now when the cost of living in BC is just incredibly high that that there even just a few hundred dollars can be a barrier for someone. It can, um, and it can make the difference between a service and and trying to make do because you need to buy groceries, <laughs> and and that's a huge challenge. I also want to share with you, Eleanor, that you know Jacob spent $40,000 of his own money because he could, because he had an ICBC settlement, that he could go in and apply to go to a facility of some kind. He wanted one that was pastoral in its setting, and, and he wanted a quiet space. They rejected him because of his uh, brain injury. And I said, we can't help you, which is kind of like saying to a cancer treatment um, patient, when you're in remission, come back, we'll help you. It's the same thing yeah. in my in my lens. Um, and so there are no standards of practice. I want to go back to that again, because I also think that that is imperative to change what's happening in, in our in our lives, in our homes, in our families, in our friends' families. And I think it makes it clear, too, for anyone listening, that Jacob was a person who was seeking help. He was. And Definitely. so we're not talking about someone who wasn't trying to get better and to be strong and to be successful. But it sounds like almost at every turn he faced rejection or that the services just simply weren't there, including at the hospital. Let, well, the hospital. <laughs> so the hospital did discharge him twice in 40, 48 hours, and he died within hours of that second discharge. The first time he went in willingly, he knew that he was in a dangerous place. I took him in. Uh, it was a very difficult experience. Not enough time to talk about that. But the next evening, he was taken by ambulance because he overdosed. They knew he was a danger to himself, and they sent him home the next day. They did not communicate with his next of kin, who was me, and I had no way to protect him or rescue him from the situation where he died. I'm sorry for that. I am. 
And, um, you know, it's also some, a, a topic that we've actually spoken about. I had uh, two sisters, uh, Crystal and uh, Cindy, who are on um, a couple of different episodes, whose brother was released from uh, Royal Jubilee Hospital and then um, only a short time later actually died by suicide. Um, and they were not informed as well. It's something that I'm aware of as the critic. It's something that I'm working on, wanting to get that accountability there because family members like you um, really want to help their loved one. They want to be able to, to be there, yeah. um, but we can't. But, and, and, you know, if we're going to get through this crisis that we have, we are reliant on family members to provide the support, sometimes the housing, the guidance, but if we don't give um, the tools to families, then they're at a disadvantage right from the get-go. Um, and that's, uh, it's very, it's frustrating and it's unfortunate that we are in a position where a phone call that would make a difference, or potentially, we'll never know, but a phone call that may have made a difference. It would have, I think, because as it, as it was, I became unavailable, I was driving, and had no no concept of what was actually happening because they told me he was staying in the hospital. I thought he was safe and he wasn't and he did not discharge himself. They did. So I, uh, there are some, you know, I have, a, I have a myriad of thoughts that go through my brain at any given time. And, but what I really want to say is that Jacob really did want to help himself. He wanted to ensure that he got through this, and now we're in a position where the family is never going to get through this. But you will make a difference, and you yes. are making a difference. And you know, I, um, I'm just so grateful that you've come here. We have just a couple minutes left, but I just want to give you an opportunity. So what would you want the community and community leaders, people like me, elected officials, whether you know we're talking provincial, municipal, or federal, what do you want to tell us about families like yours in the circumstance that you've been through? In amidst of all the numbers that you read, all the data, all the statistics, it's a human. And it's a human who is loved, who is surrounded by at least 25 people in their connections that those people will feel the loss. They are not a number. They are not number 236 or 11,458. They are just not. And look at the stigma and strip it away. And I'm speaking out because people have an image of the downtown east side. Eliminate that from, from your vision. Because what you need to see is the human behind this and you need to be the compassionate person who says, I'm not going to judge you. I know you didn't wake up wanting to be an addict. I, I want, I want, I, you know, even my colleagues and trustees around the province to understand that when you're looking at someone, don't put them in a box. Look at it from a holistic point of view that there is a lot going on that we don't see. There's, there's a momentum right now, really it's building, where we're going to change some of this and I'm, I'm part of that and I every time we get stuck in the numbers I'm like hello there's a human in that in that space so be and between the numbers is, is a person yes look there I love that and I think that is fundamental and so you know what the fight is far from over 
Um, I'm just getting started, Shirley Wilson, and, and you know, I'm so glad that you came into my life um, and that you've helped actually inform me and my journey and my advocacy for improving um, the system. We need to make sure that, um, you know, Jacob's battle with his suffering is over, but Jacob's battle with changing the system and helping other people is not over. And, and I really, really am so grateful. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Shirley. Thank you for having me. And if you have um, a topic that you'd like to discuss or maybe something that you'd like to share on Outside the Chamber, please reach out to me. My email address is eleanor.sterko.mla at ledge.bc.ca. Thanks, and until next time, take care.